There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Dead Rock Stars with Mick Wall and Joel McIver. Welcome, everyone, to the newest episode of Dead Rock Stars. I'm Joel McIver, author of many books, many, many articles, many, many interviews with the great and the good of rock music, and I'm here with my dear friend and comrade Mick Wall, who's done all that and many, many times more. And today, we will be talking about a rock star very close to our hearts. So which icon, which dead icon are we discussing this week, Joel? Well, this week we're looking back to, uh, I want to say, Ireland's greatest ever rock star. You think that's going a bit too far? Well, you know, Rory Gallagher, another very famous dead rock Fantastic star. Fantastic musician. Did he have the stature and the fame that this particular chap has? He certainly did in Ireland. Mm, okay. All right, then. Shall we say someone who was unusual demographically, someone who traversed various styles of music before hitting on something that grabbed the pulse and the hearts of the nation? Well, you can if you want. I, I don't know what any of that means. I'll tell you what he said to me once. Yeah. We were talking, and I said... Um, Did you say Mick, you wanker? Uh, almost, yeah. I said, uh, Phil... You and I have got a lot in common. His name was Phil. That's a giveaway, right? Yeah. I'm an Irish bastard too, because I am. Uh, Wall was my mother's name. And Lynott said, well, I'm not just an Irish bastard. I'm a black Irish bastard, so wow. I win. Oh, bloody hell, Does man. that give it away? I think it does. Everyone who's tuned in very, very kindly to the, you know, this podcast, it's kindly. the great, very late, sadly, Phil Lynott of Thin Lizzy. And I think earlier on, a moment ago, when I said that perhaps he was Ireland's greatest rock star, I did mean that quite seriously, but I rely more on my colleague Mick Wall to confirm or deny that, because he knew him. Did, did. you not? I did. I knew Phil. I In what capacity did you know him? You worked with him? Were you his friend? What was the score? You ask me this every time if I was their perhaps friend. Perhaps I shouldn't. Is that uh, a silly question? Well, yes, I think so, because... You know, once you are a famous rock star, yeah. I, th- I think you stop having friends and you get people that get to know you or people that you rely on. But your only real friends are the ones you knew before you were famous. Because fame stops you being able to have genuine friends? Is it like that? I think so. I think so. You know, a, a friend is someone that you can be your worst self in front of. I mean, I still have friends and in my road, I'm really famous. <laughs> Yeah, but you don't have any friends. No, I, 
You didn't. I'm not you know, saying they're real. Yeah. No. <laughs> no. We're not talking Facebook friends, okay? Uh, we're yes, talking course, actual yeah. human actual beings real friends. that you ring on a Wednesday night and go fancy a pint. Now, did uh, the great line at do this to you? Did he ever phone you up and say? How about a drink? I'll tell you what he did do to yeah. me once. And we're, as usual, we're leaping far ahead. I do here. do that. I'm sorry. Um, I try to unnerve you at the start of every episode. We were in the dressing room at the Marquee Club for a Wild Horses gig. Wild Horses was the band formed by Brian Robertson. Yep. The Thin Lizzy guitarist. Later the, of Motorhead. Later of Motorhead. Played on Boys Are Back in Town and all the big hits. And uh, his new band, Wild Horses, with Jimmy Bain, another dead rock star we will get to Jimmy at some Bain. point. And Linet said to me, Mick, you're into Fleetwood Mac. That's a terrible... Wait, he was Ian, not from Ian, Yorkshire. Ian, 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 cut that. <laughs> are you into Fleetwood Mac? I can't... Fuck me. I'm Irish and I can't... OK, I'm not going to do no, it. I think it was more like, are you into Fleetwood Mac? That there kind of, go. like, aggressive well, well, southern No, thing. he was more of a smoothie. He was, are you into Fleetwood Mac? <laughs> I was like, Phil... No, no, you sound like Sean Connery, mate. Are you into Fleetwood Fuck Mac? Fuck off, money, Sean Connery. Are you into Fleetwood Mac? Is any of this going to make it in? Yes, if it does, thank you so much do. for listening to it us. We do appreciate it. It, it gets better, do. it gets better. No, Ian, leave all this in for crying Ian, out loud. Leave all this in. Now, that's a northern <laughs> Irish accent. Phil famously was from Dublin. He was from Dublin. Crumlin in Dublin. He was and Crumlin. he said, Mick, Ian. <laughs> do I not edit this out. I right? inter- Will you shut up talking to me? I interfleet off. He said, are you into Fleetwood Mac? And I, I was about 20 years old at the time. And I went, well, I really like the early stuff with pink and green. Yeah. <laughs> I love the chain. And he went, ha, 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 come here. And he pulled out a white packet. Bloody hell. And he unfolded it. And with a plectrum, he dug out a big load of powder. A goodly portion. Goodly portion. I went to shove it under my nose. And I was no stranger to such activities back no. then. However, there was something odd about this particular powder. And I said, oh, uh, what is it? And he went, Fleetwood Mac. God. Smack. And I went, oh, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, no, Mrs. No, 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 no. Yeah. And then he went, I don't offer this to just anybody. Christ. So I did it. Did you? I did, yeah. Did you realise that's both illegal and dangerous? It was back then, and it still is now, and do not do this at home. Kids. Kids. Bloody hell. Different times. Now, I was in preparation for our meeting today, Mick, to... Does that um, make him my friend, though? Seriously, it gives you a position of authority to talk about him, which many people do not have, mm. um, which I think is the selling point, frankly, of this, uh, of this podcast, as well as my amazing radio voice, which is deeper and deeper. How many other people have the, the stories that you have about this man? And that's an example... I guess, of what we were talking about last time when we talked about John Bonham and the time before that mm, when we talked about mm, Freddie Mercury. Mm. I was listening back to podcasts in preparation for today and I remember you saying, times were different back then. People said, knock yourself out on cocaine, knock yourself out on all sorts of drugs, watch out for the heroin though, just take it easy, you know, you can dabble. That was the only no-no. I mean, you've got to remember in the 70s, offering somebody cocaine was similar to these days saying, would you like a glass of champagne? Mm. We'd go to meetings in the... I was a PR in those days. I was a partner in a company called Heavy Publicity. We did Thin Lizzy, Dire Straits, Black Sabbath, many, many big rock bands. And um, if you didn't turn up with cocaine, it was considered somewhat, you know, poor show. It's mental, really, Um, And, in fact, on our invoices to the management or record companies, whoever was employing us, one of the items on the invoice was always champagne and flowers for the band, (sighs) which meant coke, 
because that was the lingua franca so, of the so, times. Uh, Linet's uh, poison of choice was the smack. It was by that point. It didn't start out this way. I mean, I think we need to let's talk about the younger. Should we do a timeline? A little bit of a timeline because Linet was a tremendous artist, mm. a very interesting man. The fact that he ended his days so tragically essentially from a heroin overdose, uh, although it was more complicated than that. We'll get into that. Can I tell you a... I just butted in. Of course, yes, yes. That's Um, not like you at all. I have a story about Lionel from his very early days, which you may know. Oh, go on. But I'd quite to share because you may may not know. The the listeners may not know. As you may know, I'm the editor... What was that, by the way? What was what? (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Do you have to do that with... You know, that's not cool, man. That's not cool. I should apologise for, for my... Mac. Yeah. Now, listen, as you may know, I'm the editor of a magazine called Bass Guitar, and one of my writers... Glenn is Hughes. A, is a, one of my writers is a fantastic woman called Ellen O'Reilly. Oh, right. Whose father, Patrick O'Reilly, who, whose late father, Patrick O'Reilly, Scottish. ran a show band in Dublin. All right. It's a long story, uh, which uh, you can read about, actually, in Major Guitar Magazine, because I got Ellen to write about it when we were writing about Liner. And it turns out that uh, the show band that Patrick used to run, Liner used to turn up to this, and this is when he was really young, 17 or 18, a young right. lad, didn't play any instruments yet, but he showed an interest in the bass guitar, mm. which was lying around on the stage. Patrick, fine man that he was, used to say, oh, come and have a play, Phil, you know, go and do whatever you want. And that's basically the end of the story. He played a bit of bass showed an interest in playing, was given encouragement by this fellow, Patrick O'Reilly, the father of Eleanor O'Reilly, my writer, and subsequently went on to his career. How about that? Well, I guess if you like bass, that was quite a nice story. Well, it's more than that. It introduced him to the stage. He was unable to step onto the stage with a band, you know, because of this chap. You mean it would never have happened if it hadn't been for Uh, Patrick? Did I say that? That's kind of where you're going with this. No, no, you may read that into it. No, uh, no, I I don't uh, think... What what else is there to read into that, frankly? Only that he he was a kid who was interested in getting on stage, took the opportunity when it was given to him, and interestingly, it was a show band, you know, did these kind of cheesy cabarets. Irish show bands were about the only live entertainment you got in Ireland in those days. I mean, apart from uh, folk clubs, where Lionel also honed his craft, oh. as it were, with Eric Bell, uh, the original Thin Lizzy guitarist. Yeah. They used to make more money doing uh, folk songs in little clubs and boozers in Dublin than they did actually getting on stage and performing as Thin Lizzy in the early days. Right. Hence, a few years down the line, when they did Whiskey in the Jar, that was one of the songs a they'd always done. Traditional song. Well, yeah. it was a Dublin song, uh, of a traditional old Irish yeah, yeah. song. Yeah, so yeah. He, was a, he was a folkie before he was a rocker. He was a bit of everything. I mean, you know, uh, these days, I think, post the 80s, post the whole kind of Kerrang, Headbangers, yeah. Ball generation, Lizzie unfairly get lumped somewhat into the same bag as your Iron Maidens and all yeah. the rest of it. Yeah. But in fact, that absolutely wasn't the case. Lionet grew up absolutely admiring uh, and being hugely influenced by Van Morrison. Yeah. Hendrix, of course, but mainly as a role model, uh, not as a guitarist. He was a poet. He published books of poetry. Yeah, like you. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I want to mention your poetry in every episode. Did the fucking producer just interrupt us? Did the fucking producer? Do you want me to come and press Do you want us to swap places here? Lineup was like Bowie. That's what our producer has just told us. Of course, Lionel was famous for his mime with Lindsay Kemp. <laughs> he uh, he also was very influenced by Anthony Newley, and uh, his the first boys great are back in town. 
the boys are in outer space. Just in case this has been edited out, listeners, our it, producer it, suggested it, earlier that perhaps Lionet had something in common with Bowie, which is why we're taking the piss. Yeah. I, I don't think you need to do that, Joel. No. <laughs> Just carry on, mate. In ca- you're so worried everything's going to get edited out. There's going to be nothing left in the programme. No. Yeah, stop looking at him. Ignore him. When did he start chipping in? So shall I continue? Well, if that's all right with you, Ian, can yeah, can, yeah, yeah. He says, yeah. You Once may. Lionel got over his Bowie phase, um, <laughs> he came to England with Thin Lizzy. They were signed to Decca. They released what well, in the early Bowie days. Was signed to Decca. Uh, there you go. <laughs> Case closed. Clinching fact. <laughs> anyway, early doors. Thin Lizzy combined that kind of Gallic, folksy, uh, traditional Irish sound with rock. So a bit like there was another famous band at the time called Horse Slips who was slightly more into the Irish medieval sound. Thin Lizzy, though, you can hear it right. It's almost in their DNA because even when you get past the Eric Bell lineup and you get to Brian Robertson and Scott Gorham and the boys are back in town and jailbreak, you can hear those guitars. Yeah. The melodies, right, yeah. They're they're always kind of shuffles that that, that go right back to original Irish music. It's a funny sort of unique character, really. We haven't talked much about the fact that he was a black man, which was unusual, I guess, in Dublin at the time. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, a a black, illegitimate child of a white woman, single mother. What was his parentage, do you recall? His father was African-Portuguese, and his name was Paris. Yeah which also, in a bizarre way, led to one of Lionet's most famous songs, credited to Gary Moore, yeah. Parisian Walkways. Wow. I remember Paris in 49, and the Paris was for him a little word play on his father's yeah. real name. But it was his mother that, that really uh, brought Phil up, although yeah. he did spend some time with his grandparents on his mother's side. His mother worked in England, uh, she wasn't able to look after a little baby. Yeah. So he had a difficult upbringing. I mean, at school, you know, Brian Downey, the Lizzie drummer who was at school with Lionet, told me that he was actually mm. a very sensitive soul mm. who got picked on, pushed around, and eventually snapped, stood his ground in one memorable playground fight at which Lionet had brought a knife God. against this horribly tough bully. Yeah. It didn't go beyond brandishing the knife. But it kind of stood his ground, and from then on, he took it as read that that was the way to deal with people. And by the time I knew Phil from about 77 onwards, yeah. 76 I first met him, but I got to know him better from about 77 onwards, he had this tough guy stance. He mm. was One of his uh, songs, I think, Warriors, he famously says, my heart is ruled by Venus and my head by Mars. Mm. And that was very much him. You know, He was a very, very smooth charming, yeah. svelte, bon vivant, particularly mm. with, uh, you know, the ladies. Mm. And then amongst the men, tough guy, real tough guy. He had massive, massive <clears throat> hands, which is partly why he was a good bass player, I guess. When I knew him, Thin Lizzy roadies, when they came for the job, they'd, they'd have always been recommended by other roadies, so he knew they could do the lighting rig or whatever yeah. the hell roadies do. They were only ever asked one question, but it was always Liner. He was the boss, always. And Liner would ask them, can you fight? Bloody hell. And if they said yes, he was like, you're hired. God. So that whole boys are back in town thing, for Liner, this was a... It wasn't a you know a bit of fun he had you know writing a song. It was, mm. a, it was an ethos. It was, mm. They were very street 
tough band. I would have been really days. frightened if I'd ever met him. Do you think so? Yeah. Oh no, he was he was was he very, quite tall? Oh, he's very tall, mm. tall as a vampire. Bloody hell! Um, but very funny, yeah. very charming. Yeah. Let me tell you my story. Yes, please. Does a it involve the ago, bass guitar or Glenn Hughes? It involves um, Glenn Hughes, <laughs> who I did a book with a few years ago. <laughs> Now, the reason my mix laughing here is because I, I mentioned my friend Glenn You don't Hughes have to explain this, Charles. For those of you who haven't been keeping It doesn't up. matter if they don't know. Just carry on, mate. <clears throat> so we're jumping forward, of course, as we always do when I um, get involved. But uh, at some point, am I right, did not uh, Gary Moore leave the Lizzie mid-tour in America? He did in the uh, summer of 1979. He, did. he took it upon himself to fuck off right before a gig. Uh, he did. On the day. And where did he go for refuge? Oh, to Glenn Hughes' you know place story? in New York. In, in LA, I think. Oh, in LA. Yeah, oh, yeah. You, I bow to you in my. That's all right. When it comes to knowing Glenn Hughes', Glenn Hughes entire story. He, he lived up in, uh, you know, the Hollywood Hills near um, John Mayall and the rest of it. and that. Laurel Canyon. Right Laurel up there. Canyon, right. Yeah. So uh, Glenneth is at home doing whatever he's doing on that particular day. And a knock on the door, and it's Gary Moore, right? Gary Moore comes stumbling in and says, that's it, I've left in Lizzie. And um, Glenn, well, well, doesn't really know what to do, I suppose, and says, uh, OK, fine, you know, what drink? As he told me in the book, he said that you sort of didn't really argue with Gary Moore when it came to stuff like that. He had scars on his face for a reason, right? A couple of hours later, <laughs> the phone rings, right? And it's fucking Lynott, like, not just angry, but experiencing yeah. biblical levels of rage. Yeah, I bet. And says, if you got more there, I'll fucking cut you. Or words to that That's effect. still Northern Irish. Yeah. <laughs> try, try more for Dublin. I, I do. If you've got... If, <laughs> I'm do you st- like Fleetwood Mac? Yeah, I've perfected it. He wasn't stoned, If man. you've got more there, I'll fucking I'll cut, fucking cut you. fucking throat. Throat. You would have said throat. Throat. Cut your throat. Cut your throat. Throat. Glenneth, of course, shot himself. Didn't <laughs> say no, no, I haven't got, I haven't got Gary Moore. Bless him, you know, you can't blame him. Phone got hung up, and then uh, the outcome was that that was that. They had to get someone else in, which well, I don't know who was it. It was Midjour. Midjour, of yeah. course. I mean, yeah, they should yeah. have got Brian Robertson in. But can I just say the thing about that story that I've always found that, curious yeah. is Gary left Lizzie mid-tour because Gary was not a drug guy. You know, Gary was a, a boozer. Yeah. He wasn't yeah. a drug guy. Liner and Gorham at that point were full-fledged oh, were junkies. Out, they? Full-fledged junkies. Gary couldn't stand it anymore, and that's the reason he left. And the bit of the story that always gets me is that having left Liner and Gorham because they were such junkies, yeah. he goes to visit Glenn Hughes yeah, yeah, himself, yeah. one of the biggest junkies the in the music the business at that point. Yeah, yeah, I unbelievable. Mean, really. How does that work? Oh, I don't know. And as we know, there were subsequent amazing adventures with Glenneth and Gary went on to do crazy stuff together. Well, and you can read in the book, it's available yeah, on Amazon right now. Yeah, that bit will be <coughs> cut out. Yeah, yeah. You. yeah. So Lynott, they're not a man to cross or to encounter when in his rage. Definitely not, no. I mean, he famously, and I was there for this, it was fantastic, actually. On their Black Rose tour, they had a big party in London at the end of it. And I was involved as a PR. Yeah. And uh, in those days, uh, the music press uh, was paramount. You know, we didn't have endless TV channels and radio channels, certainly no social media. The music press was how you stayed connected and plugged in to uh, your favourite bands. So they were very important. They were the gatekeepers. And, of course, all the most prominent ones were at this party. I'd be given a budget. I think it was about £4,000. No, a budget. You know what a budget is. I, just because I didn't say low budget, budget, you didn't quite get it, did you? Budgets are what record companies used to have, right? 
£4,000 I had to put on this party, which in 79 yeah, felt like a lot of dough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I should have put it on at my place and kept the dough, but yeah. you live and learn. One does. So um, we're at the party, and it's all going swimmingly well. Oceans of champagne and, you know... And... What, everyone I don't was know ill? If, everyone I, I, I don't know if Glenn was there, but uh, it was like that. And anyway, Alan Jones of The Melody Maker, these days... Uh, uh, kind of former editor of Uncut, Uncut yeah. a great writer, great figure in those days. He was one of those people who was very confrontational, mm. but in a kind of a very humorous way. Mm. And uh, But it got him into trouble, all sorts of trouble. And on this particular occasion, Lineup being Irish, could have a maudlin streak. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. And you get him on the right booze and the right moment, and he would start to talk to you about his people. Mm. I mean, he, he was a history buff. He knew about every every well in Ireland. He'd tell you the story around him. <laughs> yeah. The Battle of 1583 and the lairds that owned that hill. Yeah. And he knew everything. But he used to like to talk about my people. And Jonesy, who was Welsh, just, you know, fed up with hearing all this. Mm. And so Linus at the bar doing his, my people, you know, for hundreds of years, you know, persecuted, you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm. And Jonesy goes, well, Phil, uh, what people is that? The Paddies or the Blacks? And Phil went, bang. And Jonesy, literally like in a cartoon, went, boom, 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 boom. And then there was a huge cheer. Wow. And then they lifted Jonesy up, took him back to the bar and gave him a bottle of champagne. Yeah, and, and all was well. Those were different times. <laughs> they were definitely different times, yeah. Bloody hell. Dead rock stars lobbing light grenades into the gloom. OK, cool. We've talked about him as a, a person not to be crossed, but what interested me earlier was that you talked about him as a, as a sort of smooth, charming man who, you know, you could get on with. Absolutely. Always fascinates me, and it's a recurring theme in these podcasts as well, you know. We tend to talk about people who have multiple sort of parts to their nature, well, Actually, definitely. What makes them interesting, right? No, of course. I mean, wouldn't it be awful if the only lineup was the boorish one that, of legend? Yeah. You know, I mean, as I say, he was a poet. A bit like you. <laughs> 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 he was a poet, not like me. He was a published poet. Although I have had some poetry published, but have we'll, you written poetry? Yeah, I have. Actually. <clears throat> Does it rhyme? No. Talk a bit about um, Lizzie. And I, I didn't finish what you last asked me to talk about. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> yeah, when I listen to these podcasts, which I try yeah, not to, yeah. it's full of you going, here's a I question, must, must and then just... interrupting me before I get a chance to fucking answer it. I've, I've honed my... I must put in here. Uh, yeah. I must, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he was a good he, man. A good man. Spec- yeah. yeah, stop talking. I'll tell you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, he married Caroline Crowther. They had two beautiful daughters. And he was a great guy to go and visit in his days when, you know, he'd wear a white suit and yeah. gold jewellery and and play the gentleman at home. Yeah. You know, he was like an Irish David Niven, you know. When would this have been? Late 70s. Mm. I mean, the whole heroin thing really came in around 78, 79. But it wasn't unique to Phil Liner no. at all. I mean, no. it was just prevalent. It wasn't really until... The early 80s when Thin Lizzy broke up, those were the really dark days. Mm. And I guess we should go there because... Well, hang on, we'll get there. I want to stay with the good times just for a moment. Specifically, I'd like to ask about Scott Gorham, who I've met a few times and Mm. liked. Mm. Hell of a musician. I think he did a good job with the resurrected Thin Lizzy, briefly, Mm. not so long ago. The twin guitarist thing in Thin Lizzy... I once uh, was talking to Scott, this was a few years after Phil died, and I said to Scott, you must have got really sick of the fact that you kept losing guitarists. Yeah. You know, you, you were solid yeah. right the way through. 
it was always the other guy. Mm -hmm. And the fact is, when it came to Brian Robertson, Phil sacked him. He sacked him twice. Mm. So bad, he sacked him twice. Not because he wasn't a great player or didn't have a great part of the Lizzie identity. But I then went on to work with Robbo. I was 21 and he was 23. And I've got to tell you, he was out of control. Uh, With the booze? With everything. Robbo, Mm. you know, you'd say to Robbo, do you want a drink? And he'd go, yeah, I'll have a quadruple tequila. Mm. And you'd bring that back and he'd wallop that and go, well, I have another one now, you know. He and Jimmy Bain used to come into our office and a bottle of brandy later, they'd go off again. I'm sure it's not recommended. Uh, Well, that plus all the coke and smack and weed and cigarettes and uh, it was endless. definitely not recommended in Men's Health magazine that I read. No, but then talk to Jimmy Page, talk to Keith Richards. Mm. I mean, Francis Rossi of Status Quo isn't dead yet told me just the other day when I was talking to him that uh, in his Alco phase, he'd go to the bar, Mm. order six tequilas, knock them back, then order six more, knock them back, then order six more, and that would be the tray he would take to the table to sit down and have a drink. It's no wonder there's such a long list of dead rock stars for us There you go, there you go. So Robbo got sacked. Gary Moore came in. Gary was the complete opposite to Robbo. He wasn't a drug guy. He was a booze hound, but he was also a virtuoso guitarist and he'd known Phil from the year dot. And Gary fired himself. Robbo got fired twice. Gary Moore left Thin Lizzy twice. Mm. Twice because he just couldn't bear being with Phil anymore and seeing him kill himself. It was specifically Phil's drug use that was putting him off. Absolutely. Uh, Towards the end of his life when they did that single Out in the Fields. Which is killer, by the way. Which is a a great song. But that was Gary trying to rescue Phil. Mm. Gary told me that while they were doing that session, Phil would have his uh, heroin dealer come round to the studio every day. And he said one time, he said the lowest point it got was when his wife was working that day or something, so he had his little child with him. Oh, no. And the little child and the dealer went into the toilet with Lina. Oh, please. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Dead Rock Stars, Memento Mori from Mementus Mortals. Did Lizzie's fortunes wax and wane in the time when they were famous? Was it a gentle thing for them? Was it a sudden sort of massive leap to fortune with the live album? As you perceived it, Mick, how did it go for that? No, no, not at all. I mean, these are the days when record companies would sign an artist and build a career over three or four albums. The fact that they got good press was a huge encouragement. So Mm -hmm. it meant that they could always do shows at colleges and clubs. They'd always get well-reviewed. You know, they were favourites of people like Charles Shah Murray and The Enemy. Nick Kent famously did a great cover story on them around the time of the Black Rose album. Sounds and Melody Maker, very supportive. So they always had a profile but it wasn't you know they they were considered deeply unfortunate because whiskey in the jar was a hit (laughs) and it was a novelty hit and you don't really come back from those to continue the bowie comparison imagine if bowie's first hit had been the laughing no you know it would be very hard to then come back with you know the man who sold the world (laughs) thin lizzy had a similar problem Mm. all that saved them was the fact that they already were established album artists. And the fact that Eric Bell left so soon after the success of Whiskey yeah. allowed Lineup to reconfigure the band, new label, new management, just relaunch the whole thing with the two guitars. And that became their signature sound. Dueling guitars. In the era of punk, mm. how is it that Thin Lizzy, who played fairly unreconstructed rock music, crossed over and, and were successful and impressed the punk-obsessed critics of the day. Because they all loved Thin Lizzy. You know, they weren't considered Black Sabbath or Led Zeppelin. For a start, they had hit singles. Mm. Secondly, they had Liner. You know, Liner was a judge on Miss World. You know, Liner would turn up on talk shows. Liner was a tough dude. Parallels with Lemmy? The punks love Motorhead Yeah, too. no, very, very close parallels. In fact, the first time I ever met Liner was when he was talking to Johnny Rotten uh-huh. after a show at the Hammersmith Odeon in 1976. They had a party afterwards. I wasn't yet in the business. I was somebody's plus one. Yeah. And it literally was. This is 76. Can you imagine? The boys are back in town. has been a big hit. They're on their third night at Hammersmith Odeon. And there's this glamorous party. Yeah. Uh, and it's all Page Three Girls and George Best and Alex Dolly Siggins. Birds. Yeah, Dolly yeah, Birds yeah, and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah. And um, the guy that took me, Pete Mikowski, a famous uh, rock writer, he's talking to Phil, and I'm just standing there like you do, like a pillock, not knowing anybody. Like a fifth wheel. Absolutely. And this horrible guy, I'd never heard of the Sex Pistols. Anarchy in the UK hadn't been released. There wasn't anything going on yet that I would have heard of. And this horrible creature, all hunched over with weird (laughs) gelatine orange hair and looking like a rat, you know, came over, oh, Phil, I'm so fucking bored. And Phil was like, ah, fuck off, Johnny. Go and pull yourself a board. And he's like, oh, all right, Phil, but I fucking hate this shit. And he wandered off. And I said to Pete, 
who was that awful guy? Mm-hmm. And Pete went, oh, uh, that was Johnny Rotten. I went, <laughs> Johnny what? <laughs> he said, no, no, that's his name. He's in a group called the Sex Pistols. I remember thinking, well, that's the first and last I'll ever hear of right. them. This will be a fad. Yeah. A month later, of course, I was buying the single. But um, Lionel wasn't a hair-down-to-the-waist heavy metal guy. Yeah. He had an afro. Yeah. This wasn't Pink Floyd we're talking about or Led Zeppelin. This was Lizzie. And, of course, Lionel, like Lemmy, mm. who was one of his best friends, mm. was out at the clubs every single night. Mm, mm, so, um, so people like Steve Jones and Paul Cook just kissed his ass. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Great. Man, I love the, love the picture you're building of, of this man, a complex individual, but a good bloke to be around. Well, Bob Geldof was a so-called punk in those days with the Boomtown Rats, uh, also an Irishman. Yeah. And he told a great story where he told me he went round to Lionett's house in Richmond with Paula Yates, who was yeah. Geldof's girlfriend at the time. And he said Lionett gave him some smack. Yeah. Geldof passed out in the other room and feels like, come on, Bob, I'll, I'll put you in my room, you know, and lies him on the bed. He said, meantime, Phil then takes Paula into the other room no. and try, tries to get off with her, yeah. Oh. Knowing Paula, I doubt he tried very hard. No, no, no. Did you know her? I did. Interesting. She used to sit there in the record mirror office and she used to do a, a column for them. Hmm with no knickers on and a really short skirt, and she'd sit on the desk wow. at eye level, and then everybody had to pretend not to look. Mm, mm. Different times. Mm. Different times. Well, you say that, but I bet, you know, Justin Bieber is somewhere right now doing something like that. Is he someone that's cool with the kids? Is he alive? Will well, he be on this programme <clears throat> one day? Well, he may be. Whether we will be is a whole other kettle of fish. It's interesting, isn't it? Honour honor among thieves, almost, is what you're referring to there. Lynott feeling perhaps a touch of reticence? <laughs> well, I don't even know if there was a touch of reticence. Mm. I think it was more Smidgen. a case of... I think it was more a case of, look, he's passed out. Mm. We could do a quickie. What's the harm? Mm. Opportunity. Mm. These good Can times I tell have... you another thing? For uh, like I, uh, I'll talk to my producer. Yes, you may. <laughs> he's not the boss. <laughs> he's your producer, I've is said he? this before. What I love it is the way you say, can I say something? And I always go, well, maybe you can. <laughs> Yeah. Did anyone try and step in and save him? Did Lemmy come round and have a word? You know, that kind of thing. Did anyone help out? I... I'm not sure it's known, you know. I don't know if they did. I mean, these days, we're much more accustomed to the idea of, of intervention. Yeah. Or uh, actually, it, it, it's, it's a bit like cigarettes. You know, if, if I was to light up a cigarette right now, mm. there would be outrage in the entire building, Okay. <laughs> The period we're talking about, if you didn't smoke, yeah. people would say, oh, why is that then? On a health kick, are you? Well, not even that, but they're just genuine bafflement. Mm. Well, you don't smoke. You must be a singer. Yeah, perhaps you've got an allergy or, you know... Sure. You know I feel sorry for you. This mm. guy doesn't smoke. <laughs> the thought of someone going to Phil and saying, hey, Phil, I think you're kind of hitting it a little bit too hard. Mm. Just those people wouldn't be invited home. No, I'm with you. As we say each time, don't we? Different times different vibes. Did you know Phil in this sad phase of his life? I did. In fact, I visited him about a month before he died. Crikey. Tell and us about that. He, he was very ill. I mean, he was very bloated, pouring with sweat. But I'd kind of got used to that. He'd mm. been like that for a few years. I mean, was, every time I saw him, yeah. it was like, oh, he's got the flu, you know. Was Lineup doing anything productive at this he point? He had released a single called 19, which essentially was, well, ZZ Topper doing really, really well with a synthesised yeah. guitar sound, I'll do the same. Yeah. He did a really lame video in LA 
for which he was so out of it he could barely sit on his motorcycle. Um, he came home and by then Caroline, his wife, had moved out, taken the girls away. You can barely blame her. I mean, no. you know, she'd been gone a couple of years at this point. Mm. But he still had that kind of slightly defiant, cheeky sense of humour. Yeah. And I don't know why I asked him this. I think because it was a very sort of melancholy moment. Yeah. Everything about him at that point seemed a bit Miss Havisham. You know, it was mm. all kind of, here's my gold records from five years yeah. ago, you know. Yeah. And for some odd reason, I, I said, uh, Phil, do you regret not making it in America? Because they kept blowing their chances. The Boys Are Back in Town was a big hit single in America. Yeah. Jailbreak became a chart album, the album the song was taken from. They went to tour and they cancelled because Lineup got hepatitis. Mm. They came back, regrouped, did the Johnny the Fox album, which yeah. he wrote most of the songs for while in hospital with hepatitis yeah. from Dirty Needles. They were about to go out back out on tour beginning of 77 with Queen. It was it was billed as the Queen Lizzie tour. Mm -hmm. Robbo gets in a fight with Frankie Miller on Frankie Miller's side at the speakeasy, cuts a tendon in his hand, can't play guitar. That tour gets cancelled and then rearranged with Gary Moore stepping in. Yeah. And then Last Chance Saloon in the summer of 79 when they're opening for Journey, who were big at that point in America. Gary Moore fucks off mid-tour and blows the whole gaff. And at that point, every promoter in America, mm. their record label, uh, Cliff Bernstein, who was working for Mercury, their American record label, who then went on to manage Def Leppard, mm. who were Thin Lizzy devotees. Yeah. You know, Metallica, all these people said to me, it broke my heart. You know, when they, they blew it yet again in America, we pretty much at Mercury all just went, you know what? Fuck it. These mm. guys are their own worst enemies. Yeah. So cut to six years later, for some stupid reason, and I think I was cringing even as it came out of my mouth, but I said, Phil, do you regret not making it in America? And he goes, oh, yeah, he goes, but don't I regret not fucking Kate Bush? <laughs> and I yeah. thought, well, you know. Defiant till the end. Phil's philosophy, in mm. a nutshell. Mm. Had he lost hope then? I mean, is it just... No, no, he was completely in denial. I mean, Scott told me that... Scott went home to California and got clean. Yeah. Came back a year later and went to visit Phil around this time at his house in Richmond and said to Phil, look, let's get the band back, but you've got to get clean. Yeah. And Lineup was always absolutely, absolutely, first thing tomorrow, mm -hmm. I, it was always like that. And then do you know the story of, of you know the last night of Phil's life? No, I don't. Well, this involves our other old dead rock star chum, Jimmy Bain, mm. and it's a ghastly story, which I, I'm going to, Keep to the minimum. But, you know, Jimmy was a huge smackhead. But he was this very slightly built, elfin-like guy who mm. had a, the capacity of a tank, you know. Mm -hmm. But he and Lynott were friends. They'd co-written together on some of the Lynott solo albums. And they had what you'd call a big night at the house. It was just after Christmas. Yeah. Big night. From which Phil turns blue, goes into a blackout. Yeah. The organs in his body at that point were collapsing one by one. <sighs> and Jimmy, with the constitution of a buffalo, mm. survives the night, fucks off in the morning and leaves Phil there. Crikey. I think made a phone call to Phil's mum just to say, you might want to go round there. And then you get this bizarre set of circumstances where Phil's mum turns up with Caroline and they decide not to 
take him to the hospital or call 999, but to get him to some private health clinic miles outside of London. Yeah. He was still alive at this point. Yes, Mm. yes. And, um, you know, the only reason I can think of was because he was big in the tabloids at that point. I mean, he was really... It reminded me of that guy that used to be with Kate Moss. What was his name, that little shit? Pete Doherty. Yeah. Always in the papers for the wrong reasons. That was lying up by the end. And I can't help thinking maybe if we dial 999, the police will come, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So they decided to go private, as all rock stars did and do. You know, these days you go to uh, the Priory, you know, pay thousands of pounds so you don't have to, you know, deal with it in public. They didn't have that then, so they had this other thing. And, of course, it didn't help, Mm -hmm. you know, he died. There is one last story which may be apocryphal, but knowing Phil, I kind of doubt it. Apparently, almost his very last words to the nurse that was in the room with him, and I was told this by a guy called Big Charlie, Mm. who was what they called your Percy, your personal roadie. Charlie's now dead too, for the same reasons. Mm. Lynette called the nurse over. Come here, come here, darling, come here. And she leans up. He was only 36, don't forget. She leans over and he says in her ear, I suppose a wank's out of the question. <laughs> I'm going to say right now that is apocryphal, but it's brilliant. I don't think you, it is. You think it bears some investigation? Well, apparently he also asked Charlie the same question. So uh, I think the man was in desperate need of something. <laughs> Clearly if he it was. was just a pillow over his face. Bloody hell. Yeah, so he died of multiple organ failure at the age of 36. And when you see all these people like David Coverdale yeah. and Joe Elliott and all these people now cleaning up in the classic rock market. It's obvious that if he'd just taken that year, three months, whatever, to get clean, no. Lizzie would have come back and um, yeah. we'd still be talking about them today. But you know what? He really did just miss that boat because it must have been, what, 84 when Motley Crue cleaned up? Uh, Aerosmith cleaned up. Well, uh, Aerosmith cleaned up. Uh, cleaned up. Sorry, the year after. So it was all happening. Yeah. At that time, as yeah. I understand it, management was starting to be pissed off with all these people who are dying or, or, or incapacitated all the time, and said, "We will not invest this money and time in you right. until you start cleaning up." Which is why there was this large wave of cleaning up. I'm not saying it was a, a pretty thing to watch. It's quite nauseating at the time. Well, Motley Crue was 89. Oh, it was late as that. Yeah. But for sure. There was a movement towards that, right? Well, we so, had a we were entering the era we're in now, where you actually had facilities and people yeah. to do this, and yeah. you actually had people. You know, you saw some of these people in the Metallica movie, psychologists and and yeah. Bon Jovi when they broke up got back together two years later because they brought in a group psychologist who yeah. sat them all down in a room for several months and they they worked through their issues. Perhaps Phil was one of the last rock stars to succumb to these habits um, before I doubt, I, no, 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 I before, before this general idea that you could be helped out of this thing professionally became part of the conversation in rock music well maybe but you know Steve Clark of Def Leppard died in 91 of, of similar causes sure Mm. Addiction is addiction, whatever the year, whatever the time and yeah, place. Yeah. You know, the problem with a lot of these guys as well, I think, and Steve Clark used to talk to me and tell me, he's someone else we're doing another episode, yeah. but he used to say to me, one of the biggest problems he had going into rehab was when you sit around in the circle and do your group meeting, yeah. everybody else would have these dreadful stories of how they reached bottom. Yeah. And his dreadful story would, would be, well, I've just done Madison Square Garden. <laughs> and, you know, Jason Bonham told me, that when he first went into rehab, 
and you know Jason's very ebullient and yeah. you know out there guy the counsellor took him aside and said Jason look when you tell your story at these meetings can you tone it down a bit because <laughs> because when you tell the story of you reach rock bottom the night you found yourself in Vegas <laughs> with a bottle of champagne yeah. in each hand and a, an ounce of coke and fifty thousand dollars he said yeah, yeah. it just there's people here envious of you. It diminishes everyone else's yeah, experience. They're not going, right? wow, that's terrible. They're yeah. going, shit, yeah, maybe okay. it ain't so bad. Yeah, yeah, right. Where did it all go right? Yeah. Well, we tend to wind these things up, do we not, by mm. awarding stars out of five. Mm. Various criteria, almost all of which are completely tasteless and dreamt up by our producer. And the first one is, um, I believe, a, a legacy. The legacy of, of Linet. As I understand it, the Thin Lizzy brand still exists. I'm not sure whether it's a it's a global force to be reckoned with. People still talk, do they not, in hushed tones about their finest records and their oh, best tours. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. But, I mean, it, frankly, he died decades before his time and, and, you know, perhaps with his life's work not done. I don't know. How do you, what's your uh, view? Definitely a talent wasted. Once he got into heroin after the Black... or during the Black Rose album and thereafter, they never made a good record no. again. Their final record, Thunder and Lightning was a good album. But by then they had their last great guitarist in the band, John Sykes, yeah. whose very next move was to join Whitesnake, mm. where he co-writes with Coverdale the 1987 album, which becomes one of the biggest selling albums of the 80s. Again. Well, he didn't write that. That was Bernie Marsden. No, I just broke into song. Yeah, can, can I not do wrong, that? Wrong song. <laughs> um, no, no, well, John Sykes co-wrote all of the album, apart from that track, yeah. all of the album with Coverdale, and that, that, as I say, became one of the biggest selling albums of the 80s. <laughs> Stop laughing. So the Thunder and Lightning album was a good album. He had young blood. Sykes was great guitarist, dynamic looking, not a drug guy. Yeah. But other than that, I mean, Lynott threw it away. You know, he, he was, at one point, he was going to star in a, a biopic about Jimi Hendrix. Mm. He had an opportunity to become a solo star. You know, yeah. Rod Stewart's manager, Billy Gaff, was interested in managing him. But everybody threw in the towel once they spent any time with him in those years because he just was a terrible, terrible West. It's one of the reasons <sighs> that prevented Lemmy becoming a bigger star. You know, people go on about Lemmy being this outlaw. Yeah. That's all he was left with at the end because his opportunities to do an Ozzy Osbourne yeah. always got frittered away. Yeah, fucking hell, man. All right, so what did we say? Mark's out of five for his legacy. Well, you look at Def Leppard, you know, you look at Bon Jovi, who always did The Boys Are Back in Town. as yeah. You look at Shrek, Boys Are Back in Town. I would say, I'm going to say four. I'm going to say four Sounds because... Reasonable. you know. Because he uh, he was a great songwriter. Mm. Did you like Metallica's version of Whiskey in the Jar? I absolutely hated it. <laughs> really? I thought it was the biggest pile of shite yeah. I've ever... Especially that bit where Hetfield starts talking about whack for my daddy. Yeah, that makes my balls shrink. It really pisses me off yeah. because it's... Strange it's, choice. You would have thought they'd have got the lyrics at least. Yeah. You know, the line, of course, is wake for my daddy-o. God. Wake. But with an Irish accent. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Hell yeah. <laughs> Whack for my daddy. Oh, hell yeah. At one point, Hepford goes, oh, whiskey. <laughs> like, do you think he ever stop, heard stop Thin Lizzy? Did he ever hear Thin Lizzy, do you think? Do you know Metallica? Actually, no, he was a huge Lizzy fan. I'm sure of it. Kirk Hammett told me that, uh, yeah, yeah. and I can't remember which bloody track it is. One of their early tracks was ripped off from a Thin Lizzy song, but... We're going, we're going down a side alley. Yeah, here. yeah. Anyway, yeah, we'll come to yeah. it. Uh, okay, what about his star quality? 
Five. Marks out of five. Five, five, five. Uh, like Freddie, did he light up the room when he walked through the door? 100%. We more, I would say more than Freddie. Freddie had a propensity to want to hide sometimes. Mm. Whereas Lina, no. No baby. You know. Amazing. You know the reason he held his base? You, as a bassist, you might know this. Why he held his base so it high? Was so people could see his cock. No, no, he used so to the women could see his cock. Exactly. He used to have two spotlights one for each hitting ball. his crutch. <laughs> so it was just his whole Let's area. Again, one for each ball, wasn't it? Possibly, although I think it was more the thing in the middle that, it, that uh, caused mirrored, the stir. He put the mirrored scratch plate on his base so he could shine it at people, which is like less, uh, yeah. less rock star-ish, but nonetheless. Yeah. All right, good. Taste for excess. Oh, five. Mm, all right, yeah, okay. And this is something that uh, our producer always puts in. I fundamentally disagree with it. I'm going to say it anyway. Mark's out of five for death as a career move. No, I'm going to say zero. Yeah, I'm going to say zero. You know, it fucking messed up his career, the future career that he could have had. Yeah. I loved Phil. He was the lucky black cat for such a long yeah. time. Yeah, But boy, did he fuck it at the end. And that, listeners, is today's lesson. Don't Thank fuck it listening. at the end. Try not to fuck it at all, let alone at the end. Especially at the end, though. Because if you fuck it at the beginning, you can still come back from that. Anyway, so how do we get to the next dead rock star? Both Lina and our next dead rock star were the leaders in their bands. Lina, overtly, the other more covertly. Oh, that is good. <laughs> in fact, our next dead rock star's band actually covered Thin Lizzy, but only after Lina had died. And both recorded albums with lightning in the title. Linets was his very last album, and Joel... Yes? Our next Dead Rock Stars was his second to last. Uh, bear that in mind, people, and thank you very, very much for tuning in. We will see you next week. Any final words about the great Linets, Mick? Any girls out there with a bit of Irish in them? Any girls out there like a little bit more Irish in them? As he used to say on stage. You heard it here. This has been a 7 Digital production. Thank you so much for tuning in. We really appreciate it. Please share the heck out of our podcast. And we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Hell yeah. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.